Today we continue in the book of Hebrews. The, the author of Hebrews has been quoting and commenting upon various passages from the Old Testament. By my count, through, through the last eight chapters, we have 20 different Old Testament quotations. And the, the cumulative effect of all of these quotations is to say that what the people of God have had is good. And yet, God is doing something even better. And the new and and better thing that God is doing was initiated by Jesus, who is now serving as our great high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Last week, we talked about this this new and better thing in terms of the covenant. Chapter 8, verse 6. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second covenant. We're introduced to this this much more excellent second covenant with an extended quote from Jeremiah 31. This is the longest quote in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews is going to devote the the next few chapters um, to unpacking this quote from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Remember from last week, that word establish means to to bring to completion or to fulfill. So this, this new covenant does not necessarily replace the old covenant, Rather, the new covenant fulfills and perfects the old covenant. Verse 10, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And so with the coming of this new or renewed covenant, God is forgiving and forgetting our sin. And God is ensuring that that we are fully empowered to walk in his statutes and commandments. So that, in the words of Paul, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, in short, the the new covenant provides a way for covenant disobedience to be forgiven and a way for covenant obedience to be empowered. And and when, when is this supposed to take place? When is this supposed to take place? It's an interesting question, and and I don't think the answer is what we might expect. Look at verse 13. He says, "In, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. At the time of this writing... The old covenant was becoming obsolete. It was growing old. It was ready to vanish. 
According to the author of Hebrews, at the time of this writing, the old covenant had not yet passed away. Now, does that mean that they were still waiting on the new covenant to begin? No. The new covenant had already been definitively established in Jesus. However, there was this this 40-year period in the first century during which the old covenant and the new covenant overlapped. I believe the entire New Testament, including the book of Hebrews, was written within that 40-year overlap. And, And the overlap ended with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. That marked the official end to the Old Covenant era. Keep in mind, in in our gospel reading today, Jesus prophesied that the temple would be destroyed within one generation of his ministry. And so when, when that actually happened, when the temple was destroyed, the ministry of Jesus was further vindicated. When the temple was destroyed, Jesus was further vindicated as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And, and his ministry in the heavenly sanctuary became all the more important once the earthly sanctuary was destroyed. That's the basic point being made in chapter 9. We're going to move pretty quickly through verses 1 through 10, which describe the limitations of the old covenant. Then we'll slow down a bit for verses 11 through 14, which describe the, the superior quality of the new covenant. Verse 1, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. And then behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Essentially, these verses give us a, a very brief description of the earthly sanctuary. The, the tabernacle or the temple. And the key takeaway, the key takeaway according to the author of Hebrews here, is that there were gradations of holiness. A section called the holy place, followed by a section called the most holy place. Meaning, the old covenant was a covenant of exclusion. God desired to be near to his people. God desired to be near to his people. That's why the the earthly sanctuary was built in the first place. But nevertheless, human sin stood between God and his people. Sin hindered relational intimacy. And so, verse 6, the priests would go regularly into the first section, the holy place, performing their ritual duties, but into that second section, the most holy place. Only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. This is a a reference to the Day of Atonement. We've covered that um, a a few weeks ago. But by this, by, by the Day of Atonement, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as that first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age or the Old Covenant. So again, the the Old Covenant was a covenant of exclusion. The people of God did not have full access to Him. 
according to this arrangement. Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So, not only, not only was access to God restricted, not only was relational intimacy hindered, but according to verse 9, the old covenant priesthood was unable to perfect the conscience of those who desired relational intimacy with God. What does that mean? What, what does it mean to perfect the conscience? In, in modern English, the word conscience uh, usually means something like um, my personal awareness of the morality and ethics of my own behavior, right? We, we say things like, I have a guilty conscience, meaning I feel guilty about something I did. Or I have a clean conscience, meaning I feel fine about what I did. I have, I have no regrets. Or we say, that guy has no conscience, meaning that guy has no sense of right and wrong. That is not what conscience means in the book of Hebrews. The original Greek word refers to a, a judicial admission of guilt. The original Greek word um, indicates that, that to have a conscience in need of cleansing is to have a rap sheet. It's to have a criminal record. And so in, in that sense, perfecting a person's conscience means expunging their legal record. It means that in the eyes of God, the judge, our record has been cleared. So the, the old covenant was not entirely ineffective, but it was powerless to clear our record. The ministry of the old covenant priests within the old covenant temple was unable to eliminate the hindrance caused by human sin. But, verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, clear our record from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus has gone where the old covenant priests could not go. Jesus has done what the old covenant priests could not do. Jesus is ministering perpetually in the most holy place, and his ministry is fully able to clear our record before God the judge. Jesus has fundamentally changed our standing before God. We formally stood before God, guilty and condemned. But now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who claim Jesus as their legal representation in heaven. 
So long as Jesus is representing you in heaven, which, which he will do eternally, by the way, so long as he represents you, you stand before God, cleared of all charges. You see, Jesus, Jesus doesn't just make us feel better about ourselves. He didn't come just to ease our, our troubled minds, our, our troubled English version of the word conscience. He actually wipes our slate clean. He purifies and he perfects a moral record that, that was up until now hopelessly tarnished. And that's very good news. But the good news doesn't stop there. Because not only has our record been cleared, but we have also been elevated and promoted to serve the living God within his throne room, within the most holy place. How much more will the blood of Christ clear our record from dead works to serve, to serve the living God? In Genesis 41, Joseph was sitting in prison, but he was summoned by the king, and his record was cleared, and he was elevated and promoted to serve the king in the throne room. In Daniel 6, Daniel is sitting in the lion's den, but he's summoned by the king, and his record is cleared and he's elevated, and he's promoted to serve the king within the throne room. In Esther 6, Mordecai is awaiting execution, but he's summoned by the king, and his record is cleared, and he's elevated and promoted to serve within the throne room. That is what has happened to Jesus. From the cross to the grave to the right hand of God the Father, And it's what has now happened to us in him. Not only has our record been cleared, but we have been elevated and promoted to serve the living God in the throne room, in that second section of the earthly sanctuary, in the most holy place. Wait a minute. I thought thought the most holy place was reserved for the high priest. Yes. That's precisely the point. Not only is Jesus our great high priest, not only has he entered into the most holy place on our behalf, but he also takes us with him. He makes high priests of us all. Every Christian person has high priest level access to the throne room of the living God. We were dead in our trespasses, but we have been summoned by the king and our record has been cleared and we have been elevated and promoted to serve within the throne room of the living God. We are like Joseph and Daniel and Mordecai. We were dead in our trespasses, but we have been summoned and cleared and elevated and promoted. Listen, this would have been an unimaginable truth for first century Jews. 
this would have been an, an absolutely dizzying concept to consider. So let's not take it for granted. Some of us remember what life was like before we met Jesus, but none of us know what it was like to live under the old covenant. For as long as we've been Christians, we've enjoyed the blessings and the benefits of the new covenant. And so it can be, it can be difficult to fully appreciate how special it is. But if, a, if an ancient Israelite family were to time travel and join our church, if they were to hear about these, these nearly unbelievable things, these astonishing new covenant realities, How do you think they would respond? How do you think they would participate in the life and worship of the church? I imagine they would love to be here every Sunday. To commune with a a fully accessible God. No more exclusion. We get to do that? I imagine they would come very close to whatever Paul had in mind when he said, pray without ceasing. I imagine they would search the scriptures with a sense of wonder and delight. I imagine they would prioritize following Jesus as closely as possible and knowing God as intimately as possible. I imagine they would walk in the Spirit, the Spirit who has been poured out in fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. They would seek to know the the full power of the Spirit's empowerment in their lives. I imagine they would feel just like Joseph or Daniel or Mordecai with a sheer sense of awe at what God had accomplished for them, a profound gratitude to to be numbered among the recipients of new covenant grace. That's you. That is each and every one of you. So don't take that for granted. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are most holy. And yet you have made a way for us to draw near. You've made a way for us to know you intimately and to be in your presence. Jesus, thank you for clearing our record and for elevating and promoting us for service in the most holy place. Holy Spirit, help us to appreciate um, this this new covenant grace we have received and, and to walk in the Spirit, knowing the full power of your empowerment moment by moment. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.